Welcome to Mom and Up. With your co-host, developmental psychologist, Dr. Marty Erickson, and Dr. Aaron Erickson, maternal child health specialist and nurse practitioner. Here's my grandma, Marty. And here's Aaron, my mom and mom. Welcome to Mommy Enough. I'm Marty Erickson here with my daughter Erin, and we are so pleased to be uh, launching into this second edition um, or a part of a series, a three-part series that we're doing with sponsorship from St. David's Center for Child and Family Development. They are a long-term supporting partner of Mom Enough and and in my own career at the university before I worked um, so closely with them over many decades. So we just really value uh, that organization and the wonderful experts that they bring to our Mom Enough podcasts. If you listened a couple of weeks ago to Melissa Williams, who did the first um, part of this three-part series, she gave us a foundation about parental mental health, child mental health, and the intersection between the two. And I really encourage you to listen to that if you haven't already. But today we're going to be joined by Laura Talbot, who is, uh, has a master's degree in child development from the Erickson Institute in Chicago, one of my favorite places. And she also has a master's degree from Northwestern University in counseling with a specialization in child therapy. She has years of experience working as a developmental therapist in the early intervention system of Illinois. But we're very lucky here in Minnesota that she joined St. David's Center here in the Twin Cities in 2018, uh, where she is a home visitor and home visiting supervisor, supporting parent-child relationships within families with children from birth to five. She's passionate about early intervention and the power that a positive parent-child relationship has on development and relationships across the lifespan. And uh, we're just so happy to have you with us today, Laura, and you're going to be talking specifically uh, about postpartum depression and anxiety uh, as a part of parental mental health or mental health challenges, um, particularly when children are very young. And so we just really look forward to what you have to bring us today. Thank you for being here. So much for having me. Yes, Laura, we're just so grateful for your time and wisdom today. Uh, Let's start by just kind of fleshing out what the difference is between postpartum depression or and or anxiety and typical depression and anxiety. Are are the risk factors different? Do they look different? Just tell us a bit more about that. Sure. Um, I I think in general. we don't think of postpartum depression and anxiety as markedly different from typical. What makes it different is the onset. So we're talking about uh, depression or anxiety that's starting in pregnancy or up to one year post-delivery. With that being said, while it's not markedly different, right, if we think about all the challenges and the transitions that are happening as a new mother and in that newborn period, we can then think like, wow, the impact of depression at this point in the lifespan is, um, is, is just really significant. Another thing that I, that I want to make sure that I highlight and point out is that, um, that postpartum depression and anxiety are, 
are really common. So some statistics are saying, you know, one out of nine moms, some one out of seven. Some statistics are even up to 20% of women are impacted by postpartum depression or anxiety. Um, so I think the message there is that this is common um, and and happening for for many women who, who really don't even um, know that they are experiencing it until they're on the other side, right? Until they're looking back and time has, has given them that opportunity to say, wow, I think that's what, what was happening for me then. Um, so one of the important things to be thinking of um, when, we, when we're holding how common um, this experience is, is that we do have a good sense of what some um, really predictable risk factors are. Um, obviously a history of depression or anxiety pre-pregnancy uh, and, and um, is, is significant. Um, also um, infertility loss, pregnancy loss, complications during pregnancy or delivery, um, feeding challenges, breastfeeding or uh, um, babies who have um, difficulty latching, all of those um, issues can, can compound and um, be risk factors for postpartum depression or anxiety. Also, all the social supports, right? A, a, a mom who has a lack of support or doesn't have family in the area, that's something that we know contributes to risk. Um, and then another um, really huge eye-opener for, for me personally was that one risk factor for, for moms um, is, is uh, difficulty asking for help, perfectionism, oh. high expectations. You know, so this might be a mom who, um, who went into motherhood thinking like, I got this. I, I know exactly what to do. I can handle stress and hard things. And, um, and then, wow, the overwhelming uh, gut punch of a newborn and recovery from um, birth, it just leaves them feeling like everything that I knew about myself, I don't know anymore. I just love that you mentioned that because I don't think that's talked about very often in these conversations, even among professionals working with these issues. And, and I think then along with that gut punch comes a feeling of shame or, you know, I'm less than other mothers, you know, what's wrong with me that I'm experiencing this? Yeah. And so I, I just think that's hugely important. I wonder if you could clarify for us the difference between what's often referred to as the baby blues, which it really does affect a very huge number of women um, and clinically mm -hmm. significant postpartum depression or anxiety. So I, I think sometimes the two are melded yeah. together um, and because the symptoms uh, are similar and they overlap. And um, so the experience of baby blues is, is expected. Um, it's part of the transition into motherhood and, and due in large part to hormonal shifts. Um, and those, uh, the baby blues will get um, better in a period of, of weeks. So um, I think when we begin to think about significant postpartum and depression, we think it, things are getting worse and they're not getting better. And it's lasting several weeks. Um, and that it's starting to impact functioning. There have been a number of women and celebrities in, like, in, in recent past who have shared their own experience of postpartum depression. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Chrissy Teigen. 
She's a model, um, a TV personality, and she wrote an essay a few years ago about her own postpartum depression. And, and in the essay, she talks about overwhelming like body pain and aches, you know, sleeping on the couch for days on end, um, keeping her clothes downstairs in the kitchen because she just couldn't possibly muster the energy to get upstairs at the end of the day. So this is the kind of like um, depleting, um, excruciating experience of postpartum depression and anxiety that makes it more than um, the baby blues. Great description. Yeah, really helpful. I'm so glad you brought up that story about those physical symptoms because, you know, I often as a clinician will have patients come to me and they're like, oh, I just, I hurt and oh, my back hurts and and I'm tired and um, they're not really thinking about depression. And sometimes they're like, oh my goodness, I never even realized that could be a factor. And then, of course, when it's treated, they feel better. Now, not to not to say that all fatigue or all body right. pain is caused by that, but it's a really important factor to consider. And the more we uh, work to address the stigma of mental health, the easier it will be for people to really consider that possibility and not feel dismissed by the suggestion that there could be a mental health factor involved. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's you know, my biggest hope from, from our conversation today is that, um, that, that support people feel like, gosh, just saying something is enough right? Just talking about how are you feeling today? What's that like for you? Just to bring that unspoken um, out and, and because that's where the shame is, right? When you're, you're a new mom and this is supposed to be such a joyous time in your life and what you're feeling internally just does not match up. Yeah. And then our brains say, okay, well, that's gotta be me. That's not because this is this time and everybody says it's so wonderful. So it must be me. I must be the one who, you know, is different. And it's that's that's a really lonely and and horrible, like hard place for someone to be. And we want to just take them out of that. You don't have to be in this alone. Yeah, such an important reminder. So I'm sure people listening may be thinking, oh, maybe this isn't me. Maybe I have some risk factors or, or maybe someone they love has some risk factors. How can we support someone who we suspect is struggling with postpartum depression or anxiety or postpartum OCD, which often doesn't get the credit that it needs? You know, people don't, they talk so much about anxiety and depression and, and a lot of women you know, experience postpartum OCD as well. So how how might we support someone or someone we think could potentially be at risk for this? And um, so that that just turned on a a part of my brain, um, Erin, as you shared that too, because that that is um, those um, intrusive thoughts that come with OCT um, are really... are really, really scary to moms, right? Because a lot of times that might, um, the thought might be about um, how may my baby be harmed in whatever situation, right? Oh, I could trip and fall while I'm carrying my baby. Um, and But there's so much shame around sharing those thoughts because what we hold in our brain as an experience of someone with postpartum depression or anxiety is maybe those really, really scary news stories, those very tragic stories. And so if we are starting to experience anything that maybe feels like, um, could I harm my baby? Wow, that's gonna be really, really challenging to share. 
Um, and, and so that's how I think we can support uh, families, if if we if we are thinking um, after this hearing this conversation, gosh, I might have a, a lot of risk factors for depression or anxiety, um, or my sister. Um, the best thing that you can do is just start talking about, you know, what's your relationship with like with your OB? Are they asking you? Um, are they checking in about depression symptoms along? throughout your pregnancy? Do you feel comfortable bringing those things up with them? If you don't feel comfortable with them, what about your primary care physician? Um, is there a friend? Is there um, just someone that can be in this with you? I think the preparation um, is, is really uh, a crucial part of um, supporting moms who are experiencing yeah, so important. And I wanted to just also mention, in case dads are listening, that uh, dads can also struggle with intrusive thoughts. Uh, there was a study done that showed uh, dads, a significant percentage of dads experience intrusive thoughts. And I think because we have, have raised our awareness of postpartum mental health issues for mothers, that sometimes we forget to mention that, yeah, dads can have some of this too. Yeah. And so for anybody, whether it's a mom or a dad, it's really important to, to check in and, and pay attention to that. And, and, and that, um, you know, so many times at, at really crucial uh, transitions in our lives, you know, moving, a new job, all um, we expect like, increase in anxiety or or depression um, and the same is is with uh, becoming a new parent and and so I think what you're saying about dads too is it's like they experience the transition also um, and their whole world is upended and so um, they are also figuring out how am I integrating this new role into how I understand myself. And that causes anxiety and stress. I'm glad you brought that up, Erin and, and Laura. Uh, and I think that so many dads don't know what their place is. Um, you know, they feel squeezed out by the mm -hmm. mother-child dyad and, and in part just because of biological reasons, especially if moms are breastfeeding primarily. But, you know, it's a huge change for the whole, um, that relationship between the partners. Um, but I think a lot of times they haven't had the experience that females have had in babysitting or, you know, learning about children and, and particularly newborn infants who don't uh, appear to do so much, at least as a lot of, mm -hmm. a lot of fathers uh, describe. I hear that more from dads than moms. But, you know, they're little creatures that it's a little hard to relate to if you really don't know what they need and what to expect. So um, that brings me to the next question which is what can get off track with the baby's development and the parent-child relationship when the primary care caregiver, or I would say both caregivers, both primary caregivers, mm -hmm. um, are mm -hmm. struggling with postpartum depression? What are some of the consequences of that for the child and the relationship? Well, I, I think first and foremost, just, just the satisfaction in the relationship, right? Like if you don't feel good enough as a parent, if you don't feel like you understand your baby, you can um, read their cues and and be what they need. Then you start to feel like oh, I. You start to maybe um, spend less time holding your baby, right? Um, and and th this over time 
gets the the relationship off track, right? Because what we know babies need from their caregivers is uh, touch and connection, right? There's there's so much regulation, co-regulation that happens when you're holding a baby close to you and they're hearing your heartbeat, they're they're feeling um, your heart and your warmth and and your voice, and so over time. We are um, holding our baby less and, and connecting with them less. We're, we're starting to feel dissatisfaction in the relationship, right? Um, and we're not feeling good enough. And, and so then that can create a pattern where, where baby stops signaling their needs or th it might be confusing the way that they signal needs. Um, and, and so that can impact development, right? Um, if you're not... Uh, if it just feels excruciatingly painful to hold baby and um, and be smiling back and forth with your your baby, that baby's missing out on um, the social connection, the social smile, the back and forth, what we call as like the reciprocity in the relationship. So um, so we might see like delayed milestones in terms of their first smile, their first babble. Um, there's so much. Babies are wired to learn um, about about people from from their mothers and their caregivers' faces, right? They they are their eyesight at birth is just uh, eight to ten, you know, they can see eight to ten inches. So like right in the crux of your arm is is what a baby can see. And if a mom is experiencing really significant depression, she's she's likely going to have a flat affect most of the time. Right? And that doesn't give that baby the same rich learning experience as a mom who is, is changing her facial expressions. She's cooing at the baby, the baby's cooing back, all of this back and forth. Um, another thing that's just what we think about in, in attachment work is that um, this relationship with a primary caregiver really sets a pattern um, over the lifespan for what someone can expect from a relationship. So if your caregiver is um, able to, you signal a need, you need to be fed, and your and your caregiver is able to to meet that need pretty quickly. That you develop a consistent pattern. Like I can predict that my adults will be there for me. If depression or anxiety is getting in the way of meeting those needs, it becomes less predictable. So you might need to cry more. You might need to cry less. Um, just in general, it it's confusing can imagine and, and uh, you know, just think about that, you know, the baby doesn't really have all the capacity to understand these things, you know, all they know is what they see in that up close and, and the feeling they get and, and, you know, their, their competence is often in their cries or their ability to elicit a response. And if, if they don't get that, I could see where that would really uh, create challenges. And of course, we know that this is such an important time of, of brain development that, that, you know, stress and all of those factors Absolutely. can really affect and, that. And, and so a baby whose need is, is going on, is their cortisol levels, their stress hormone levels are so much higher. Um, and that does have impact over time to brain development. Yeah, I've 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 had this conversation with several patients before talking about, you know, that we all experience stress, babies experience stress, adults experience stress, children experience stress. 
And it's really that, you know, you have that cortisol that goes up and you have other stress hormones, uh, the, the adrenaline, the norepinephrine, the epinephrine. But, you know, it's not having like a periodic moment of stress that's a problem. We all have stress. And so babies are going to have stress and you can see and, and measure that cortisol. It's that stress without the relief for that supportive, responsive parent to soothe the child and help those stress levels come down and elicit that parasympathetic um, response, which is that that relaxation response, which is a buffer and a protection against the periodic stress we all experience. But for babies, when their parents are struggling, there isn't that time to kind of bring the stress down to elicit that relaxation response for the baby to feel that love and support or, or there isn't enough of that in the const in the context of too much stress and so you know parents often worry about that like you know oh well I, I was having a really bad day is that and I'm like no no yeah. no it's it's the sum total of it, of that experience it's so over time and 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 it's also the um like I, I think of it um, as the more that you're doing something that feels like, okay, I, I know what I'm doing. Um, my baby is responding to, to my soothing. Um, you're just going to feel more competent in it. You're going to feel um, your confidence as a parent is just going to um, really go up, right? And that is helpful for depression that's activating right like you walk into the room and um and your baby smiles like yeah that gives you that that joy juice inside that is really really helpful for um for any parent right that's how we bond and connect um but but it's just really like gosh if if you're not having that dance that you're talking about baby cries you soothe and they soothe over time you you worry that you don't know how to do that. And that just, that compounds over time in the relationship. Um, where we, there are so many other ways that, that moms get messages of like, I'm not good enough, right? Um, but this can just set us off really early in a way that um, that's just challenging. Yeah. So I'm thinking about parents who are experiencing this, you know, they're having a mental health issue, they're struggling and it's affecting their baby or toddler. Um, what what kind of interventions do we have for parents in this situation? Yeah, it seems really wild to think like what, what type of intervention could be for a, a newborn, for an infant and their caregiver. And um, and and there are. Um, um, so there's a circle of security uh, that talks all about the dance of attachment um, and the going out in the world and exploring and coming back to your caregiver as that secure base. Um, so that's a model that's that's used and also um, the attachment biobehavioral catch-up ABC, which um, the third series will talk, I think, more about specific interventions. But, but like, it, but in general, the goal of these interventions is um, is supporting that caregiver um, and that parent-child relationship, and and really helping the parent, um, you know, walking alongside them to notice the times when when their child is looking to them for that reassurance, that support, that connection. Um, lots of like narrating, sports casting type, like, oh my gosh, did you see how um, how you started talking and, and baby turned right to you with a smile? 
like really, really spotlighting those moments for parents to just empower and 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 give confidence that like you are the best thing in this child's world. Um, and when you delight and smile back at them, wow, that just makes their whole world. You know, that, that those are the building blocks of I'm worthy, I have value in this world, um, I'm loved and lovable. Um, so we just always try to uh, um, just increase opportunities for that shared connection and delight in interaction. Notice that, highlight that, um, and, and really make the parents the one who's like, see, did you see how they did that? That's because you are so important to them. Well, those are great examples of the kind of intervention that uh, really can make a difference. And, you know, this, of course, brings back a lot of memories for me uh, as one of the founders of the STEEP program, which was preventive intervention, you know, starting during pregnancy. But um, so much of that forecasting and just, you know, walking alongside the parent and using video, um, which is also, um, you know, the, the primary device in the ABC program you mentioned. But um, yeah. ours was developed way back in the 1980s and called um, Seeing is Believing, which was a strategy within our STEEP program. And um, so I've seen parents, again, all around the world, um, you know, really doing that and just watching a video of themselves with their baby and then being asked open-ended questions to get them to notice things, you know. What was your baby telling you there? Or how did that feel to you when you saw your baby look at you that way? And um, you know, how do you find that within yourself when you're so overwhelmed and maybe you didn't have that kind of attention when you were a baby? Um, you know, just a lot of things that really kind of help the parent reflect and, and figure out the parent they want to be and see those moments when they are being that parent. So it's, a, it's just thrilling work to do, I think, and uh, I've, I've really, um, I've just been so fortunate to be involved in that for many, many decades, but I love to see what you and your colleagues at St. David's are doing uh, along those lines and uh, really, really important. So Laura Talbot, thank you so much for all that you've taught us today. Even though this has been my field of work for more years than I care to count, I just feel like I learned from you today and, and had many um, truths that I've experienced uh, really reinforced in a lovely way. Uh, people who have a chance to work with you are very fortunate indeed. So thank you for being with us and we hope all of you listening will tune in again in a couple of weeks when we'll have the third installment of this three-part series with St. David center and um, continuing this very important discussion about parental mental health child mental health and the intersection between those two thank you for listening i'm marty erickson here with my daughter erin erickson and we hope you'll tune in again next week content copyrighted by marty and erin erickson all rights reserved visit momenough.com for an archive of all mom enough shows and many free downloadable resources on child development parenting and maternal health and well-being do you think i'll have a show called kid enough someday